Well, let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we are grateful, as always, to be before your word. We'd ask that you would keep us circumspect regarding our ideas and faithful to the apostle. In your son's name, amen. Okay. We're in the second of four studies going through Galatians. The first week we got through the first two chapters, uh, and uh, a lot of it was sort of narratival, so it ate up more verses. The last three weeks are fewer verses, but uh, loaded with content. Um, we're talking about last week, Paul's pretty intense, uh, and I think, you know, you may differ, but I think... Uh, Pretty early in his ministry, I think his ministry to the Galatians was was pre first missionary journey, pre um, uh, famine relief visit uh, to Jerusalem. Certainly before the Jerusalem Council, uh, so probably in the late 40s. But a very early uh, effort on Paul's part, uh, not recorded in Acts, and uh, uh, that again you could differ on that, and, and many Christians do. Um, he's obviously having been commissioned to go to the Gentiles um, and sent off to Tarsus uh, uh, by Bartholomew um, uh, Barnabas, excuse me, by Barnabas uh, and hanging out there we assume ministering. Uh, we assume he ministered at Damascus for three years. We assume he ministered at Arabia sometime during those three years. And uh, during the 10, 11 years or so, uh, centered in Tarsus, we sure he ministered. And it's interesting how intense Paul is about uh, the gospel regarding what he preached to the Gentiles and what was happening as, you might say, fresh uh, Judaizing theologies were coming uh, into their area and suggesting they just needed to expand their religion to be... Um, faithful to the law. And initially, in the first two chapters, there is that, that uh, intensity regarding the gospel. If anyone preaches the gospel different, let them be damned. Um, and uh, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. The message of salvation, very clearly, by faith and uh, not by the law. But when he gets into, these are all Christians, generally, we would assume, that he's writing to. People who've responded to the gospel, and that's Paul's problem, is that they're being, uh, their idea, I don't believe of justification uh, as the cr Christian experience uh, being saved, but of justification of the exper Christian experience of being sanctified. In other words, the word justified just means made righteous, and you're either made righteous by the imputed grace of God, when you confess your sins and repent, or you're, as John says, he who does right is righteous. And how does the Christian approach righteousness um, uh, if it's not through the law? But Paul's very intense. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. And I, I'm, I'm no language guy, so you look things up every once in a while. You notice the word is the same. is idiots. You idiots. Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, you're going to be hearing basic rhetorical questions. He's not, he's not saying, oh, yeah, we got it by works of the law. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Now, this is a really intriguing statement. We'll flesh out a little bit later in the uh, early chapter, um, chapter 4. But he calls going back to the law, um, he calls going back to the law, um, the flesh. He calls, uh, where someone handing you a bottle of vodka and asking you to go to a, a dance club, that's the flesh in one regard. That's the flesh going after um, uh, sin, the works of the flesh, later in Galatians. But there's also the works of the flesh that Paul's talking about. You're ending with the flesh if you go back to the law. Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, the, the, the shape of the thing is... Um, uh, you might say, obviously, righteousness um, that people uh, expect of themselves as they've gone after God. They've sought God. They want to deal with sin. They want righteousness. People who come to Christ are people who are tired of the sinful life. They want to be redeemed. And it's very easy to sucker them into the fleshly approach to righteousness, which in every religion, it isn't just Judaism, it isn't just, you know, um, uh, fundamentalist Baptist churches with very strict legalism, um, it's every religion has a list of do's, you've got to do this and not do that, because people who want to be righteous, uh, we always say the shortest distance between two points is a rule, and it's a, I don't know if that's why they call it a ruler when you draw a straight line, but it's, but that's combining the, never mind. <laughs> never mind, let somebody else do the comedy. Now, the thing that I wanted you to be thinking of, the question that lands on us as we approach it, in the modern age, we, we're, we're come out of an evangelical background. And we've heard the gospel, it's preached to us, we responded to it. All too often, the, the, the work of God is not evident in people. So when Paul says, did you receive the Spirit? And the question that many Christians ask, well, did I? There are whole branches of, of the Christian faith that's until you speak in tongues, you haven't received the Spirit. You haven't been baptized in the Spirit until that happens. Or, or uh, really is the baptism of the Spirit, or really are we looking for that? And um, uh, there's a, um, a, an aspect of this I mentioned it last week regarding Paul being, uh, what he says the apostle saw the grace that was given to him. What every Christian in handling this needs to first off be in the same position as the idiot Galatians, where they, Paul could ask you, did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith or by works of the law? And you go, oh yeah, I remember receiving the Holy Spirit. Then he says... Um, so he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Now, many of us are not miracle workers. I, I, you might, some of you might be here. But 
You've all had, I trust, a prayer life where you have watched God be faithful to you. To whatever degree, the actuality of the faith in you wasn't happening in you because you kept the law or you, you kept to the faith, as faith. Because if you don't have that, you're, you've got the desire to be religious and the law very much is more attractive than, than someone who just says, well, just trust God or just have faith in God. That sounds so irreligious and not sufficiently religious. Uh, religion as a word means something that I mentioned it last week. I take Rolaids religiously. It was an old line out of an ad on TV. It means you, you have a, a pattern of doing. That's what religions are built of, are patterns of doing towards a metaphysical agent that uh, satisfies the need of their soul, and someone who's told to have faith towards God on one hand, you know, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, according to Romans 10-ish. So it's hard to, when you don't have something to fall back on, that it's a rhetorical question for you. He who supplies the Spirit to you, did he do so by faith? Hearing with faith, and that's an element of this that we sometimes skip over. We're seeing faith of the law, grace of the law. But it says hearing with faith. So the, the idea, also in Romans 10, where it says, uh, how can they call upon him whom they've not believed? And how can they believe unless a preacher is sent? And, um, uh, and it's, as, it, as it's written, it's, how blessed are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then it says at the end of 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the preaching of Christ. We're looking at a message of the gospel that the hearing of the gospel doesn't create the faith, but it is the ground of the faith. The faith reaches you as a possibility with the message granted. We heard with faith. We responded when we heard it, and like... Uh, Cornelius and his household, or the jailer in Philippi, they just heard the gospel. And some people are just such a ripe harvest that they start, well, Cornelius' house started speaking in tongues before anything, before the altar call. They didn't even know anything had happened until these guys started speaking in tongues. So the question is, do you have that? It's easier to make a case for what Paul is for, a life, faith in Christ, not death through the law, but life through faith in Christ, if you experience the gospel through faith in Christ. Some people think, if I go to church, and I find out what this church's rules are, then I do them, you know? They have certain ceremonies they do, certain lingo they use, certain proprieties they observe, certain manners certain agreements about certain concepts, and they do them all. They, they thought they became Christians by doing the law. So unless you have the, the looking at your salvation, a knowledge of it happening, where at one point you believed at another point, you don't, might not know what point that was in time. You might not know what year it was in time even. But you know that in one point in your life you didn't, and another point you did. You believed, you heard with faith, and it was by faith you were saved. And then he brings up in verse 6, 
Uh, remember, this is a problem. Uh, Judaizers coming up out of Israel, out of uh, Judea, and coming up to Galatia and disrupting the saints up there. Paul then pulls out some of the, these are Gentiles, remember they're Gauls probably, if heaven's right. These are Gauls, and uh, these guys don't have very much in the way of, you might say, uh, Jewish religious sophistication, and Christ was a Jew, and the apostles were Jews, and, and here are all these Gauls uh, getting, this, getting on board with this new religion, this new sect, and these guys are having uh, a lot of sway with them. Paul is not announcing to the Gentiles that uh, we've got a new religion, it's better than Judaism. He says we have an older religion than Judaism, and it's older for this reason. Thus Abraham, quote, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now I have that over on the side, it's from Genesis 15, 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Thus Abraham, oh excuse me, so you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That alone, that alone is an end run around the Judaizers. The problem with the Jews, you get this through Romans. Romans is, is this long uh, argument about Christians who are Jews and Christians who are Gentiles and their relationship to election. And, they, and the Jews were just a little bit more than peeved that Gentiles were considered elect people of God by faith. And uh, it's, it, it was all over the Mediterranean in this regard, and, and major fights, and Paul got stoned a few times, and, and in the bad way. And, uh, um, well, both are bad ways, I guess. I <laughs> Don't tell anybody I said that. Nobody go on Facebook. Um, and when he says, so you see that it is men of faith who are sons of Abraham? Now, Abraham... I don't know how good your Bible history sense is, but I trust you know Abraham is before Moses. He is the father of the religion in the sense that, although he's not the father of the Hebrews, he's, I think Eber was the father of the Hebrews, but, but um, he brought the knowledge or, or the following of this true God into this nomadic existence down through Palestine, his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob, and... and uh, um, Esau and, um, and then the Jews went into Egypt and the Jews came out of Egypt with Moses and the law comes in 1447 BC and um, Abraham is back in the mid eight, early 1800s BC so a, a good 400 years uh, between them, 430 years about um, so he's telling them that this idea of faith towards God is rooted in Abraham's faith towards God that was reckoned to him as righteousness. And the scripture, verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now the word nations is what your Bible puts there sometimes when they choose not to put Gentile. But the Gentiles just means the, the nations. Um, so it's like saying, in you, all the Gentiles shall be blessed. So then, that's from Genesis 12, also on the side. I try, any quote from the Old Testament, I tried to put at least the reference and the short portion of it on the side. Um, I, I think I got everything, but I don't know.
Um, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, now he says that this is preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, pointing forward to a blessing coming to the Gentiles, that if you're ahead of the curve a little bit, you're going, oh, so Paul's mission to the Gentiles is the fulfillment of this blessing, that the Gentiles would be blessed through Abraham because they shared the faith of Abraham. So then, those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now that's one of the problems with uh, law-observant people. Once you claim that the law has authority over you, say for circumcision or food laws or whatever, which are pick-a-pick-some laws, if you say the law has authority, you don't have authority. All right? On anything that the law speaks to. That's why if you're not, if not abiding by all the things written in the law and do them, you're cursed. And it's very easy. I don't know if you've read the law. You ought to. It's, uh, it covers the bases. Uh, for everything from mold growing on the wall of your house to, you know, don't murder your neighbor. All the stuff you want to do. And... Paul knew, if you read, read Romans 7, he said, I wanted to do what the law of God said, but I couldn't do it. But that's the curse. And the idea for here, these, the chapter and a half we're going through, the idea here is to understand Paul's view of what the Christian path to righteousness is, not the Christian path of getting out from under righteousness. A lot of people think that people who are against the law are just looking for a blank check. They can do what they want. No. It's, the law didn't take you to righteousness because you couldn't keep the law. If, the law. if I approach the law as saying, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you at least keep the Ten Commandments, for heaven's sake? Well, because if I keep the Ten Commandments because they're Ten Commandments, I've got to keep it all. Because I'm cursed if I don't do all of it. And he says, you're under a curse if you do. Now, it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. In case you didn't figure that out after he said, you've got to keep all of it. For he who through faith is righteous shall live. That's a quote out of Habakkuk. Um, Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail. Not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, He's pointing out that there's this, well, if you have modern young people, you go on the internet and you look at conspiracies, Paul's basically laying out a hidden conspiracy in the scripture. That right on the surface was this nation of Israel being given a law and a religion and a priesthood and a temple and all the stuff that drummed, banged the drum for it but in reality, the gospel was touching, and you can see this argument in various places, um, this, this hint that something was turning the hearts of men towards God in the right way, that they would be able to live and be faithful by faith. But the law does not rest on faith. One, no man is justified with God by the law, but by faith. 
Verse 12, the law does not rest on faith, for he who does them shall live by them. That's from Leviticus. That's, that's the rule. That's the nature of a law. I can't call myself a law keeper if I've broken one point of the law. It says in another place that if you get circumcised, you're bound to keep the whole law. Because you just admitted that you are, your actions are guided by this, this corpus, this, uh, this uh, uh, complete... Uh, idea. If, if Moses and the Sinai circumstance was a rule, it's all a rule. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, it said, um, I missed something here. Where is it? Uh, I was just, uh, it's coming up. I didn't miss it. I'm just scrambled. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. Now that's an interesting little aspect. You know how Christ who knew no sin became sin? And um, he was tempted in every manner like as we yet without sin. And how does, you know, this is an interesting insight of Paul's that he finds something that's not Jesus' fault. He didn't hang himself on a tree. It was just cursed to be there. If you crucified a man or hung a man by the neck from a tree, it was a curse on you. And Christ took on a curse by being hung. It was, a, you might say, an innocent uh, penalty. Verse 14, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now he's jumped, when he introduces the word promise, um, it's uh, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise. We are the expression of this religion that Abraham starts to recognize in a promise given to him when he says um, uh, he believed God that was about the promise that he was given. Um, and that all the families of the earth would bless themselves. Now, it's a... Uh, it gets a little bit knotted up. Paul, it can be really bad with sentences. Um, he starts to work into this idea of the promise to Abraham and it's a unique handling of the scripture. Some people might take umbrage at it, but I think Paul at least is trying to point out the truth of this idea that there's, that there's this promise to Abraham and the promise is in the gospel. It says to preach the gospel to him beforehand. It's not just, you know, I think anybody who had faith in God in the Old Testament was, you know, <laughs> expressing faith in the same promise, but, but Abraham had the specific promise that 
from him, the nations would be blessed. But Paul, in verses 15, and as we think of promises, realize that the promise itself, rather than the law or um, uh, that sort of thing, um, a promise you react to, your, the proper reaction is trust. Do I believe you or not? That's, it's not whether I do the thing. The thing wasn't a thing to be done. He was told that he would become the father of multitudes. He was told that all the nations would be less than him. And in the midst of having his God ask him to kill the kid that was the source of this. And yet he went ahead and God said, now I know that you believe. We are believing, we're hearing and believing rather than uh, uh, running around trying to accomplish the deed that the law required of us. So bear in mind when it talks about promises, it's a different category of thing. And the covenant with Abraham was a promise, not a law. To give an example, a human example, brethren, no one annuls even a man's will or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. Now you might think that Paul's exegesis is a little bit, you know, strained. He's taking the plural, the singular over the plural. Now he's also taking the Greek over the, the Hebrew, because this is the quote out of the Septuagint of that line, the singular seed rather than seeds. And he uses the Septuagint later on in the same passage uh, as distinct from the Masoretic. Um, we'll get to that in a moment, but, well, next verse. Um, but you say that offspring that the promise to Abraham was pointing to Christ. Isaac is just the placeholder, the child of the promise. Kind of like the children of uh, Isaiah, who are prophetically named, Malar, Shalar, Hashbaz, and uh, Emmanuel, these guys, they, they represented something, and they were probably really kids of Isaiah. But we know that Emmanuel, God with us, was referring to Christ. In Paul's handling of this, he is saying that singular offspring promised to Abraham is Christ. This is what I mean, verse 17. The law, which came 430 years afterwards. You say, how did you know so easily about 430 years? Because it says it in the passage. Uh, it's, now, this is also problematic because... Um, there's a verse in Exodus 1240 that says, The time they spent in the land of Egypt was 430 years. That would make this wrong. Okay? Exodus 1240 would make Galatians 3 wrong. Because that's the only other place other than in one genealogical remark that Eber lived 430 years after Peleg was born. That's the only other time the number 430 is used. So Paul is referring to that verse in Exodus. Okay? So not only did they, if you had the idea, they spent 430 years in Egypt, 
either you're right and Paul is wrong, or Paul is right and what we're looking at in Exodus 1240 is wrong. Because you say, I don't even get where you're saying this is wrong. Well, remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob, Joseph goes into Egypt, many years of slavery, released. How long was the captivity in Egypt? 215 years. But you just quoted the passage that said 430 years they spent in Egypt. I said, but I just quoted Galatians 3 where the Apostle Paul, referring to that passage, says, no, that was from the promise to Abraham, he says, right? The promises were made to Abraham, verse 16, the law which came 430 years afterward, after the promise, Abraham was 75 years old at the time of the promise, and it was 215 years till the time Jacob went into Egypt, and it was another 215 years before they came out. Which is fine, it's a long time, adding up to 430 years. Now, Josephus also says this. He actually says they spent 215 years in Canaan, they spent 215 years in Egypt. But we still got to get back to that Exodus 1240. This is how we know that he was using the Septuagint a lot. The Septuagint of Exodus 1240, it's on the margin here. I have both versions. The second one, it says that's the LXX. So we have LXX, that means Septuagint, means 70. The time that the people of Israel dwelt in the land of Canaan and the land of Egypt was 430 years. Boom, solved. That's the verse Paul got his 430 years from, and that's what he's saying from the Abraham's promise, time in Canaan, hanging out as a nomad, hanging out as a visitor, and then 215 years in Egypt, and they came out at that point lets you know that he's using the Septuagint account rather than the Hebrew. At least, it seems that way given our current versions of uh, the Hebrew and the Septuagint. But it, it says, the law came after it, that long after it. says, whatever view you take, you say, I don't like that view, Evan. I'm going to stick with 430 years in Egypt. Okay, we still could be on the same page that Moses is after Abraham and a long time after Abraham. If you're taking 430 years in Egypt, add another 215, so it's 645 years after Abraham's promise before you get around to adding the law. uh, cannot, uh, Cannot annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The promise was fixed, could not be ratified after it's, you might say, people signed on to it. I mean, could not be uh, um, amended or annulled. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now that, that the word promise just keeps riding on us as something that involves trust. When you, when you, somebody says, I promise you, and say it's your six-year-old. Father, I promise you, I didn't hit them. And you're looking at them and saying, I don't trust you, you little bastard. I think you had to hit them. And why would I trust you? But with God, Abraham is looking at the God, dealing with the God. The God is appearing to him in visions and, and telling him things. And he believes. When you heard the gospel, 
You heard with faith and believed and repented. You were reacting to a promise rather than uh, a law. And that's what, again, it's a matter of, is our faith, not just since Christ, but since Abraham, our true religion has been one of faith that has been after our God through faith, because it's built on promises. Why then the law? Okay, all right, that is sort of like an automatic question. Any Galatian in the back row is going to have their hand up going, okay, but you know, you have a few verses here and there, and you have whole books filled with the law. You can read Leviticus, big portions of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This, just in case you missed it in Leviticus, the second reading of it in Deuteronomy. It's, a, it's throughout. It's a big deal. Why then? Why is this a, um, a present thing? It was added because of transgressions. Oh. Till the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Remember he claimed that the offspring mentioned to Abraham was Christ. So there's this 870 year wait between the promise given and the promise fulfilled to whom the promise had been given. And the people of Israel are bad news. They're sinful, unregenerate people. All law systems, all law systems are there to constrain the wicked. What does it say that in Timothy, right? That the law, people who desire to be teachers of the law, anybody remember that? Good thing I have a Bible. Um, it's not Thessalonians, is it? Now, we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Oh, like Paul is just arguing, this is not how you go about things. But for the lawless and the disobedient, it was added because of transgression. The law had to be there to constrain the ungodly, to keep them from doing what they would, with punishments and demands. Until the offspring should come that the promise had been made to. And it was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now, this is, a, this is one of those, I think Paul got better with time. You know, he, he uh, clarity later on is a little bit better than this kind of uh, convolution. But it, sometimes it's because the, our translators pop a certain word and your, your translation might be better than mine. This is an RSV. But it just says throughout the New Testament that the law was given through the mediation of angels. And through an intermediary. Now it does not tell you who the intermediary is other than it implies more than one. Verse 20. But God is one. Now what he's, he, he wants them to understand is what do I do with the law? He says in certain places the law is good and just and holy. He just said something similar in 1 Timothy. But it's not for you. It's for them. And I have to understand why did God do that? It's such a, a glaring statement of ceremonial, health, civil, moral laws. Who could complain? And God wrote them. But why did he write them? 
what was what was the place that it held? He's saying, he when he says, but God is one, he says the intermediary implies more than one, like it's a mediation between agents. He says, but God is one. Is it how do we how do we have this all from God? The gospel of grace through faith? The law of Moses from God on Sinai, it's the same God. We're not dealing with the Demiurge or something like that. Some, some halfway down Old Testament Harry Thunderer and Jesus, the God of grace. Um, we're not dealing with, dealing with different things. He does not want the Galatians to not recognize the holy voice of God in the law. But he wants them to know what it was there to do. Is the law then against the promises of God? You seem like you're saying, we're into the promises because that's faith. And Abraham, faith in the promises. <coughs> so are you setting the law of God against the, the promise? What's he say? By no means. Certainly not. He usually says by no means. Uh, but Certainly not. For if a law had been given which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If it were trying to do the same, it was trying to do the same thing, it would work. In Hebrews, it makes the comment that it doesn't work, guys. Peter makes the comment to the Jews in Jerusalem and says, How can we put this burden on the Gentiles? We who have not been able to keep it, you know, um, we're, not, we're not able to do this. If it, were, if it were possible, if Pelagius was right, he's got to keep the rules, right? Keep all the rules. God would say, well, save yourself then from a cruel and wicked generation. But we need to be saved because we're incapable of this. Whatever your sense or doctrine regarding the sinfulness of man, you probably remember sinning once or twice. I know, maybe three times for you wicked ones. But we've done it. We've broken the law. And it wasn't able to do that for us. But the scripture, and Paul says in Romans 7, if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, I would not known what it was to covet. And by it wrought all kinds of covetousness in me. It sort of like drew a picture of the wrong I could do. Certainly not. But the scripture consigned all things to sin. That which was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given those to those who believe. Everything, the, all these things are from God, but recognize that the path of righteousness, he says in another place, that, that uh, law increases the trespass. God wanted rules to constrain wicked men in the broad manner of their life and their nation states, city states, whatever they were, um, he uh, needed to constrain them, but he also needed to inflate the guilt of their guiltiness, and it even he even speaks of it in Romans as inspiring sin, that sin and the law work together. Because without the law, there is no transgression. They, they are the, the, One is the holy recommendation on one side of the coin, and one is what you're going to do with it. 
on the other side of the coin. And the people who say, this is the path of righteousness. Oh, it might speak of righteousness, but it's not the path of righteousness. All things were consigned to sin, so that it was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to us. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law. Now, this is, part of this is going to be cosmological, that how you think of the world prior to the Christ, um, and how you, I don't know if you've read any, any of Lewis on uh, either Discarded Image or the uh, Space Trilogy or Heiser's book, uh, Unseen Realm, or things like that, where you get a little weirded out by a different, much different view than Southern Baptist Sunday School. Um, he lets us know what was going on. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law. That's, remember, he said, because of transgression, law was added. Because of transgression, man... Remember what happened before the flood? I'm, you know, some of you are not that old, but uh, Tim and Diane might be. But um, It was a bad time. Leslie and I remember it well. We were dating at the time, I think. And we, uh, every imagination of their heart was only evil continually. We don't live in a bad time, folks. We're sitting in the backyard talking about the Bible. Everybody else in the world was only doing evil continually, so much so that it grieved God. And so much so, in being grieved, he killed everybody. Everybody, except eight people. Which, given the population after 1,700 years, could have been a pretty tidy sum. Because they were wicked. The law came because of transgression. Man cannot live together without his own selfness starting to dominate his interchange with other selves. We're constantly coveting and envying and hating. And... Uh, Something's got to stop us. Sometimes good manners will. Sometimes law and order will. Sometimes even moral laws that we think stand outside ourselves as moral laws. We have to be confined, kept under restraint, until faith should be revealed. So 4,000 years of antiquity before Christ, people were under whatever codes of conduct and you could read the Jewish law, you could read the Code of Hammurabi, you could read the Code of Ur-Namu or Lipidishtar, and you could, you could be strangely edified by and read stuff from ancient China um, that was uh, um, admirably driven to ethical behavior. Now, there was a reason for that. Because until faith came, until uh, a direction or a object of faith came into our lives in the Christ, we needed to be under custodians. So the law was our custodian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. We just had to be locked up. We just had to have shackles on. We just had to have a governor on our engine. Whatever the illustration you want to use, if we weren't constrained by law, we might have had our sin uh, built or inflated by it, but we, we, we were boxed in by it. We were constantly feeling the pressure of our guilt and of our need to rectify this, or make the right sacrifices in the temple. Until I could be justified by faith. 
But now, verse 25, that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Okay, if you could put A plus B and get C, you know that he's talking about, are the Christians expected to be under the law? No, the law's there custodially. He is a keeper. He is a handler. There's a business downtown, Milestones, we've had friends work there, um, that people who don't know what anything is, get, get driven around and help through life and do things and try to help them out mainstream a bit. But that's what we all were. Under the law, that's what we had. Somebody in custody. We, were in, we couldn't be trusted. We're no longer under that custodian if faith has come. And that's what you, when I went at the beginning when I said, did you receive the Spirit? And it's not just did you receive it by the faith, did you receive it? Because until you have by faith received the Spirit, the custody probably shouldn't leave you. And a lot of churches realize this. A lot of churches would never, ever send the kids in their youth group off to camp alone without counselors. Never. Never in their wildest dreams would they think. Because, you know, we don't think that the Spirit has come into their lives. They might call themselves Christians. They might want to be Christians. They might have all the doctrines right. They might agree with everything you say. But there are people who need to have custody over them. We do that with small children. We, we wouldn't send that little kid off to the park by herself with a, with a ding-dong and a, and a piece of rope, see what happens to her. Oh yeah, I'm sure she would be well. Just do fine. Um, now it's a. Uh, that's why we have to be. When we talk about this, we're not talking about it theologically. We're talking about it practically. Am I in the position with God and my Christ that I'm in the position that doesn't need a custodian? And I don't need a custodian because theologically I am a Christian now, and the law no longer applies. Jerusalem Council and we're all Gentiles. It's not the, a position of theology. It is a circumstance of your living. If faith has come, you're no longer in a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, remember he had argued earlier that the promise was to one because it just mentioned seed, singular. But now we're all Abraham's offspring. It all becomes because the one to whom it was promised, Christ, is what we have stepped into. We've stepped into Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the sort of uh, circumstance you're in. And that passage that in, in uh, the Septuagint, when he uh, uh, uses the singular seed, he then goes on in the next verse to talk about how that seed would be more than the sands of the seashore. Okay? You're that. You're not that theologically. You're that actually in Christ through faith in the Spirit. Because if those things haven't been ticked off, and you can't tick those off by law observance, you can't tick off the fulfilled promise by a law observance. It's just something you trusted or didn't trust. It's something you had faith in or didn't have faith in. 
Now I know I could spend some extra time on neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. I don't think Paul's wondering about our own diversity here and things on that subject. Uh, it'd probably be worth going after it if you were talking about it, but he's talking about something else, that we are all brought in regardless by faith into this promise and become children of the promise because we share in the singular promised seed of Jesus Christ. I mean that the heir, verse 1 of chapter 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate. But he is under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe in bold. Because St. Paul put it in bold, I put it in bold. The elemental spirits of the universe. Uh, this goes back to that cosmological thing that the angelic choir um, being the intermediary of the law that was the, the intermediary of God's need in history about what man needed because he had to be constrained by it until the actual righteousness came. That's also a historic fact. Not a, again, not a theological thing. The stoicheion, that's what this concept is. The, the, the elemental spirits are the stoicheion, which are your, we would call them in modern science, your table of elements. What is that what it's called? Periodic table of elements. We think of it all uh, materialistically that, well, how many, how many electrons are going around this thing? What, is this a basic uh, set? Our elements are like their elements, but their elements, their world is not. If you've read Discarded Image, you know that the ancient mind thought that the planetary influences were definitely influences. And the elements of life were heavenly. Okay? And that's why he's saying the elemental spirits of the cosmos. Now, cosmos is a word for world or universe, or whatever. Um, but he said, this is, this is something that's part of the picture historically. So when he mentioned in passing, ordained by angels through an intermediary, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He's getting us out from under the law, and the curse of the law, and he's doing it lawfully. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As a side, I don't know if I've ever seen, everybody says this is a, um, like someone saying, Papa. Uh, it just says Abba twice, actually. It just says Father, Father. Now, if you want it to be an endearment, you can. <coughs> We always said father in our household. We didn't say dad, papa, daddy. It was very formal. I blew a bosun's whistle, and they lined up in front of me in uniforms for inspection. But that was out of a movie, in case you haven't saw Sound of Music. I always liked that guy, Christopher Plummer, before she showed up, the bad influence. Was that a point I was making? Uh, no, the Abba Father. Now, I don't think it's really essential that it be one or the other. If you want to prefer that, that what's Abba sounds like 
you know, something kids would say. Um, but I imagine it probably has the same sort of root that Abbot has or something like that. That Abbe, the father of a monastic order or something like that. So through God, so through God you are no longer a slave, but a son. Now he's, he's, he's describing the person under the law as a cursed, uh, sinful, um, a slave, um, kind of a mental defective, needs a custodian, at least immature, a child, but you are now adults in Christ, and adults in Christ do not need the law. Not do not need the law because, hey, you know, we're used to sinning, and sin's good, let's keep doing it, or can be good for Christians. No, because righteousness was never through the law. Righteousness is only through the grace of God through faith. Formally, verse 8, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. Now this is where the nature of the elemental spirits comes in. We find ourselves, a lot of choices in antiquity, I think the Pythagoreans had one use for it, and, and but they spiritualized everything. It wasn't uh, uh, just straight materialism. Um, but it says we were in bondage to that set. Because not only were you historically, uh, remember the angels were doing this through an intermediary, which was the intermediation between the need of the transgression and the coming of the promise. You needed a law, and it was done by angels. And we go, we kind of smile to ourselves because we think of the show, Touched by an Angel. And we always want angels to be, you know, really, really Renaissance nice. You know, effeminate young men. And occasionally there's some bad angels that give us the pip, but um, that's what our thoughts are. But these angels were an old order. An old order that were by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly and elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more? He's not talking about, again, a theology. It's a history. It's the way it was, was God ran the world. Remember when he says, well, you might not. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. When he says, when God separated the sons of man, he separated them according to the number of the sons of God. The B'nai Elohim. We know the Jews thought that that was 70, 72 princes of the host, and God had given the nations over to a prince each. And that's why in Daniel, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, and that's why our battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and world rulers of this present darkness. Part of this is tied to the old governmental form of the world making a grab at you in the law. It's not merely your experience with the Holy Spirit, but there are other spirits in play, the elemental spirits, whose slaves you want to be once more. You get back under bondage to them. How can you turn back to the weak and beggarly? We were talking, I, was, I have to brag about this, and I've mentioned it a lot recently. I'm sorry, but I have read everything H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote. Okay? I get points. It was awful. It was a slog. What a... 
I, I did it for the church. Um, but one of the things, we were comparing Lovecraft to Charles Williams. And a friend of mine who would read Lovecraft had not read any Charles Williams. So I went and got Charles Williams and gave him uh, The Greater Trumps. I said, this is how it's done. Because the evil people, and they're just as evil in Williams as they are in Lovecraft, try to raise the dark gods of, you know, of antiquity and do awful things to people in the world. There's no hope. And any decent person is driven mad and put in asylum at the end of the story. But in Williams, it's amusing how poor and impoverished these attempts by wicked men are to engage with the powers of darkness, things that are no longer powerful. God gave the princes their rule for a time. They had a purpose. They were intermediary. But they are not, and by God's will. But they no longer have any power. And history is different now. Now, if you, if you uh, over here on the uh, side, um, I have two passages from Colossians, and we're five minutes over, but we started late. Colossians 2, see to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. See, like this shows up a bit, okay? This, this is a Pauline, and not just Pauline, I think uh, Peter uses the term, and some of the Sibyls, I think. Uh, Colossians 2, 15. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. Okay? That's, that's a historic fact, that on the cross, Jesus Christ uh, dominated these guys. He took rule and authority from the princes and took it all upon himself. Let there, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions. Oddly enough, he says, after he told you that... The world order had been turned up with the elemental spirits. He said, okay, your participation in this is let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food. What? Drink. What? Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You know, stuff that shows up in the law. These are only a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And Christ has conquered these elemental spirits. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and the worship of angels. That ties in with our angelic intermediary. Taking his stand on visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That's your life. Your life is won by faith in the Son of God, inheriting the promise of Abraham, through Christ, and by faith, being made into the kind of soul that God wants you to be, rather than going off and LARPing like it was the old-timey days, and you got to play wizard. Okay? You don't. If, the next verse, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, oh, there it is again. Why do you live as if you still belong to the world? And what's worldliness? Drinking, dancing, and running around with girls that write bad checks. That's, what, would, what else would it be, right? Oh, no, it's not. Why do you submit to regulations? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, law. I mean, you, if you don't think this is an issue for Paul, if you want to invent your own religion and call it Christianity 2.0 or something like that, you could have your own version. But Paul's version is historically this and personally this long before it's theologically this. Okay? You can develop a theology all you want about it later, but too many people who have developed a theology on it have still not experienced the Holy Spirit by forgiveness of sins and belief in Jesus Christ. And they certainly don't stop and go, you know, I think the world used to be run by these guys, and we're not to have anything more to do with how they run things. They are custodial, and if they want more, they're trying to bring you back into bondage. It says if you, if you submit to regulations. Well, everyone knows that if you have regulations, you're more pious than the guy who doesn't have regulations. If some guy gives up something, well, that's more sanctified. Because it, we're Gnostics, you know, we think, oh, doing without is somehow holy. <laughs> so anything that says you can't have and you take that up, well, no more, you know, shorts. I don't know, anybody wearing shorts? Oh, there's a few shorts. Sorry about that. Uh, no more uh, Priuses. Uh, excuse me, sorry. <laughs> For referring to things which all parishes are used according to human precepts and doctrine. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body, but they're of no value in checking the indulgence of the flesh. So everyone who recommends you follow <coughs> the law as law, they say, well, wouldn't it be wise? Well, yeah, because this stuff has the appearance of wisdom. It tells you not to do stuff. Shouldn't you do without that? Yes, yeah, self-abasement, severity to the body. I can't eat pork. <laughs> you know, it is of no value. Not only did it not do it, if it were it could be done by it, we'd have no need of Christ dying. But it couldn't. It was never there for that. And it is being spiritually mediated still, perhaps. I don't know what the condition of the princes are. I don't know what the elemental spirits are up to. But they were up to something here. And we get back into Galatians, the last couple verse, last two verses. How could you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more? Look how he describes it. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. What? Well, you know, like the church calendar. These are all things, oh, that's not the Jewish law, but I know friends who are into the Jewish law and they keep the feast of booths and they keep the this, that, or the other thing. They're LARPers, just like Lord of the Rings geeks. Uh, they want to be something, but it's a dangerous something. It does not, and nobody should, if you want to do it, I mean, we keep Christmas, but not because it's Christian. It isn't Christian. It's fun, and it's part of the American culture. We keep it as Americans. But if I started to try to make days, months, seasons, and years into something that's part of my religion, I've just stepped back into the arena of bondage. That those observations are a path to righteousness. And then he says, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Now sometimes, I think Paul would be rolling over in his grave if he were still in his grave. Because the saints 
are doing the same thing. And it's not that the Galatians really were Christians. The Galatians might have, I don't know what happened to them after this. He visits Galatia a couple times after this. Um, I hope he got through to them. But it's very hard when people look at the historic, worldly nature of obedience to rules that's much more pious to them than asking themselves, was my life changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ? Did I believe? Did I call on his name? All right. We're done. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Keep us from folly. Keep us from bondage. Make us righteous before your Son. By your Son and our faith in him, we'd ask that your Spirit would work. And we would be able to point to it anytime someone tried to drag us away to some less valuable, more beggarly example of religion. Thank you in your son's name. Amen.